All right, so we are in the middle of a series, and uh, one of the things we like to do at Trinity is to uh, take a section of the Bible and work our way through it Sunday by Sunday, because we're convinced that the Bible is God's Word, and when God's Word speaks, we hear from God, and so it's important to us to do that. But uh, often we, we kind of go to probably more familiar parts of the Bible, New Testament and Gospels, that sort of thing. At the moment, we are in two chronicles, which is about as obscure as you can possibly get. It was tucked right away in the middle of the Old Testament. And we've mentioned this before, I'll just mention it again, that the beauty of Chronicles is that the person who wrote it was kind of standing at the end of the history of the Old Testament, looking back on everything that had happened. Jesus hadn't come yet, and he was looking back right the way to creation, to the very beginning, and God's dealing with the nation of Israel, this special nation that he'd chosen and formed, and, and he's giving us kind of a survey of their history. And he's doing it selectively. He's carefully picking the right stories and presenting them in the right way in order to encourage the reader to have the right response to God. So even though we're not Israel, and even though we're not living under the same arrangement that they had um, back in the day, we're in a different situation. We are not a nation that belongs to God. We are uh, the followers of Jesus or kind of a collective group, and God cares about us and cares for us, but we're not kind of the UK or, you know, Italy or something. It's not nation level anymore. It's more individuals collected together in the church. And so we've got these differences. And yet, as we read this ancient document talking about an even more ancient history, we can find that it's incredibly encouraging for us today. Okay. And so, uh, the book of Chronicles originally was one big book, got divided into two. We're looking at the, the second half of that, so it's really kind of the final uh, part of Israel's history. And there's a verse that kind of controls the whole book. It's, it's almost like a table of contents. It's a famous verse. If you around church much, you, you come across it eventually. And it's God speaking and making a promise. And he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And so just to kind of summarize that in real simple terms, what it's saying, and this is the amazing truth that the whole Bible is teaching us, what it's saying is that God is leaning towards his people. He wants to have relationship with us. He's leaning in our direction, wanting us to respond to him so that the connection is there and so that we can enjoy that relationship. And so there's his part, but then there's our part. It's our response to his initiative. And the four things that that verse points out that are necessary, at least for Israel back in the day, was that they needed to humble themselves, they needed to pray, they needed to seek the Lord, and they needed to turn from their wickedness. And if they did that, it was an indication that they were leaning towards him, and then all sorts of good things can happen, which is what Second Chronicles or 2 Chronicles is telling us. It's saying, look, hey, in the history, there's this king, and there's this season, and there's this, and there's this. There's about five different times where that spark happened, where God's always leaning in, but his people often aren't, and then five times, boom, they lean in, and something spectacular happens. So we've got those four elements and five seasons. What happens is that the first one and the last one are kind of 
what's the word I'm looking for? They, they used the word, uh, humbled themselves. In the first, the Jeroboam story we saw last week, and then later on, the last one we'll look at in the series, humbled themselves is kind of the big theme. And then in between, there's three other stories of times where God's people really seemed to come alive, and it was really exciting what was happening. And those are based on the other three parts of that verse, the uh, praying, the turning from wickedness. And today, the one we're looking at is seeking the Lord. Okay, so we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, 15, and 16. Right, that's page 368 in uh, one of the church Bibles. And we're jumping down to Solomon's great-grandson. If you're into family trees, this is going to be a long one by the end of the series. But we've got Solomon and then Rehoboam that Andy talked about last time. Then there's Abijah, and that's a bit of a disaster. We're skipping that one. And then we get to Asa. So Asa, A-S-A, Asa is the uh, great-grandson of Solomon. And in these three chapters... Uh, the writer is he's kind of weaving all the themes together, but the one that he really flags up is the, the theme of seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. Nine times in these three chapters, he uses the phrase seeking the Lord. And there's some other phrases that are kind of saying the same thing as well, like relying on the Lord. And, and so we've got a theme holding these three chapters together. And whatever is going to be going on in these three chapters, in the stories that we're going to read, I just want to flag it up from the start. It's supposed to make us think about seeking the Lord. But if we're going to think about seeking the Lord, before we jump into it, we probably need to think about what does that mean? It's so kind of Bible-ish, isn't it? Seek the Lord. What does that mean? I suppose in in human terms, where do we think of the word seek? Maybe uh, maybe hide-and-seek. Ever played that? I, it's a long time since I retired from competitive hide-and-seek. Uh, but as a dad, I still get to play it periodically. Maybe you've, you've, you've had the joy of playing hide-and-seek with a little one. You know, it's kind of simple. They go and hide. You count obnoxiously loudly, right? And then, you know, you get to the end. Three, two, one. Here I come, ready or not. And then you don't go and find them because that would be boring. All right, that would just ruin the whole thing if you just went, well, you're obviously right there. I can see your foot. Now, you kind of go along with it, don't you? You, you see the bulge in the curtain or the foot sticking out behind the, the settee or whatever it is, and you kind of talk your way around the room. And if they're small enough, they will giggle. And if they're even smaller, they will answer when you ask a rhetorical question. It's a wonderful thing. You know, oh, is she behind the cupboard? Okay, so I hear the voice over here. You know, it's quite a simple thing. I wish it was competitive because I feel quite good when I play it. So, so that is kind of what we think of with seeking. Is that what it means to seek the Lord? Like he's doing this kind of celestial game. Actually, no. There may be some connection, certainly between a loving dad and a child and the delight and the kind of, I want to be found even though I don't seem to be visible. There's lots of potential connections, but I'm not going to push that analogy because here's, here's what happens. Life hits, right? Life hits sometimes really hard, and there are times in life where we're crying out to God and we're saying, God, please would you help me? Please would you answer me? And, and at that moment... To think of God playing hide-and-seek is profoundly unhelpful. He's not playing a game with us. Now, I I think there's maybe another analogy that may be uh, more helpful. Think about not parent and child, but husband and wife. 
There's this incredible thing that happens when a, a boy meets girl and they kind of get to know each other and fall in love. And uh, you know, he'll do all sorts of things to, to be where she is and, and do little romantic touches along the way. And she's like, wow, this is the most amazing man in the world. And then you get married and the weirdest thing happens because inside somewhere in the hard wiring of us men, it's like a switch goes off, right? And we just stop pursuing you know what I mean by that? I don't, wives don't nod, okay? But, but husbands, like, it's, it suddenly becomes a whole lot harder to proactively pursue this person that actually, technically, you'd be ready to die for. To take them out for a meal, to sit down with them, to hear their heart, to, to, to kind of care and show you care. It suddenly becomes harder, but it's still the right thing to do. And so if someone comes to me and says, well, you know, I don't feel particularly close to my spouse and, you know, it's, we're just kind of drifting along. And, and I say, well, are you pursuing her? And then he says, that doesn't work. I go, well, hang on a minute. What do you mean it doesn't work? Like, how, how else can it work? Because when there's a relationship, you've got two people that, that are supposed to be leaning in toward each other. And, and what we call that leaning in towards God is kind of like the pursuing that husbands are supposed to do with their wives. It's that I'm going to show initiative. I'm going to show care. It goes the other way too, of course. And this week, there I many things, but one moment stands out for me where Melanie very deliberately did something that she knew would really make me feel cared for. And I was like, wow, that's that kind of leaning in, right? It's that, that seeking closeness. And that's what it means in the Bible when it says that we should seek the Lord. But one more fact, one more important thing before we jump into this story, and that is we've got to realize that God is the great seeker. He has done the seeking first. There's a story in the New Testament where Jesus comes, and at the end of the story, it says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. God's made the first move. He has already initiated. Jesus has already, the Son of God has come into this world. He's gone all the way to a a horrific death on a cross that he didn't have to do, but he chose to do, to in part to demonstrate how much God loves you and to invite you into relationship with him. And so the the first move is all his. And what we're reading about in 2 Chronicles is is this nation that had already been sought by God. He had already rescued them. He had already brought them into a relationship with him. But now he was inviting them not to kind of rest on their laurels, but to just keep leaning in, to keep pursuing knowing him. Now, there'll be some of us here today who, um, you know, maybe go, well, that's kind of interesting. I didn't even realize that God wanted a relationship. In fact, not even convinced God exists. That's cool. That's fine. I'd encourage you to to see what the the, the passages talk about. Not so much this one, although you're welcome to look at it, but get into the, the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see in, in crystal, kind of clear, strong, bold type, how God has already made the first move, how he has already gone uh, out to reach for us and to draw us into relationship with him. But for those of us that have already accepted that, who've already uh, placed our trust in Jesus, who are already part of God's family, the question that needs to be asked, are we still seeking the Lord? Is that leaning in relationally a present reality or not? 
in these chapters, we're going to see, uh, I suppose, two benefits or two promises, two positives, two good things that come from seeking the Lord. And then in chapter 16, we're going to see just a little warning about not seeking the Lord too. So let's jump in and see what it says. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, that's on page 368. And we'll start right next to the number 14, the big bold number there. Abijah slept with his fathers, which means he died, and they buried him in the city of David. That's the previous king. It wasn't a good one. We're not going to get into that. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for 10 years, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the asherim and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. Let me just pause there because there's a lot of kind of unusual words there. Asherim. What, what in the world is an Asherim? May we never meet one, right? An Asherim was one type of kind of altar. They had, they had this problem in Israel. God had rescued them, had brought them into relationship with him, and they just went off after other gods like crazy. And so everywhere you went during a time in Israel when the king was not in a healthy place, the people would not be in a healthy place, and you'd find incense altars and Asherah poles, and you'd have symbols that you would know exactly what they represent, and there'd be all these things around, and it was kind of gross, and it was distracting, and it was drawing the people away from their devotion to God. And so when King Asa became king, he went proactive. He said, right, I'm getting that out of here. Get that out. We've got to stop that, get rid of that, knock that down, break that. Come on, let's clear it out. We're supposed to be God's people. There's a proactiveness about him. And so the result of that is that the land had rest. Verse 6, he built fortified cities in Judah. Uh, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, that's the, the nation, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered and they got this massive army and they had peace. Now, this is where it's a little bit weird for us because as far as I know, none of us are members of the government. You know, we're not in the cabinet. We're not part of the sort of war office or whatever. You know, we're not involved in, in kind of security and all that kind of stuff. This just seems a little bit removed from us, doesn't it? We're not leading a nation. We have not been at war. And yet the idea of peace is much bigger than simply not being involved in a war. And obviously, if you have been involved in a war and then the war stops, you, you celebrate, right? And no more blood, no more people dying, no more, you know, all the loss and all the pain. Great. But we're not there. So how's this relevant to us? I think there's a principle there. That they sought the Lord. They sought the Lord. It's repeated several times. They sought the Lord. They were leaning into Him. And the fruit of that was peace. It was a sense that things were right, that things were in order, not just because there was no war, but, but there was that profound sense of everything is as it should be. And when we come over to the New Testament, we find that we, not Israel back then, but us today, we are offered peace. 
in one place, it says, since we have been justified by faith, since we've trusted in Christ and therefore been brought into the family, we have peace with God. That's the offer of, of Christianity, that you, instead of being in this kind of tense, awkward, distant non-relationship with God, because of what Jesus has done, we can all have peace with God, not based on our own efforts, our own abilities, our own performance, our own success, but with all of the baggage and all of the mess and all of the failure, we just trust him. We say, you've done it. You've provided a way. I am going to trust you. And then we have peace with God. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Imagine that, the God who created everything, who is at war with you when you're at war with him, and yet it's possible to have peace with him, for everything to be right. That's an incredible privilege. But then, once we have peace with God, we all have the ability to then drift from that and to start doing other things and going after other things and to stop seeking the Lord. And when that happens, we may not be in a war and we may not have you know, physical idols and, and groves of trees in our back garden or whatever, but what happens? We end up tense and anxious, fearful. Our lives start to kind of get just something's not right. And so in another place in the New Testament, it addresses that. It says, do not be anxious, but in everything with prayer and supplication, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's kind of New Testament language for what we're seeing here in Chronicles. That having had peace with God established, having already been brought into relationship with God, we can still descend into all sorts of anxiety and fear and doubts and struggles. We can lie awake at night. We can just kind of be, ah, Right? We all know that. We've seen it in ourselves. We see it in others. And yet the promise, the invitation is there. You can have the peace of God guarding your heart and your mind. How? Not by sticking into your troubles and kind of focusing on them and swirling around in them. How do we get the peace of God? It's by seeking Him. Or in New Testament language, do not be anxious. Don't do this. But seek Him cast all your cares on him is another verse. It's that, that idea of with prayer and supplication, present your request to God. We seek him by leaning toward him and praying about the things that weigh on us. And then we can experience the peace of God. What a privilege. And it's interesting that it doesn't say present your request to God with prayer and supplication and guaranteed he will give you exactly what you ask for. Be nice. But he doesn't do that. Sometimes we ask the wrong thing, and he doesn't answer the way we would want him to. He's not a genie in a bottle where we kind of, you know, the lamp or whatever, we rub it, and out he comes, your wish is my command, we ask, he does, and we're happy. That would make us in charge, and that's not the way it works. He doesn't promise us the absence of all problems. He promises us peace in the midst of whatever problems we may face. And interestingly, back in 2 Chronicles 14, we've got this first paragraph where they're uh, seeking the Lord and they're in a time of peace. And then you get to verse 9, and this is frightening. Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marashah, and Asa goes out to meet him. A million men? That's a scary army, right? And so they, they had peace verses 1 to 8, now they've got war. Does that mean that 
the peace is gone, God is not involved, give up on him, take matters into our own hands. No. Uh, Asa comes out and he cries to the Lord his God. Oh Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. This is verse, uh, where am I? 11. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. Actually, the, the words that he uses there, some of you will recognize if I give it to you in the old translation of the Bible. We rest on thee our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. That great old hymn is kind of based on these words here. And so Asa and the people had sought the Lord. They had experienced peace. Now there was a terrifying threat and he does the same thing. He seeks the Lord and he tells the Lord, I'm trusting you. And on this occasion, God deals with the enemy. The first great benefit, if you like, or the first great promise that is ours in Christ Jesus, according to the scriptures, is this. When we seek the Lord, when we lean in toward him, no matter what is going on, no matter how terrifying our circumstances, it is possible for us to have the peace of God. That's amazing. Peace with God and the peace of God. Then you come to chapter 15. In chapter 15, we get another amazing thing, another great positive. Uh, So we'll start at the beginning. Uh, Verse 1, the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. That's got to be one of the best names in the Bible, hasn't it? Oded. Um, That's Azariah's dad, in case you're wondering. And so this is a prophet. And so Azariah went out to meet Asa and said to him, hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, so the whole nation, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. Keeps going. Verse 5, in, in those times when there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. And on it goes... Verse 8, as soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin from the cities he had taken in the hill country. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of, etc., etc. And then the people gather and they make this great offering and they make this great oath. And so the leader Asa is responding to the prophet. Now, let's just pause for a second on what the prophet says here, Azariah. He's saying that, that it's almost kind of a weird verse, isn't it? If you seek him, he will be found by you, verse 2. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. It's Old Testament. They were under an arrangement. They were under a deal where the, if they were faithful to God, then there were blessings. And if they were faithless, then he would deal with them in a specific way. That's all laid out for them. That's not us. We live in the time when Jesus has come. And Jesus said, never will I leave you. I will not leave you as orphans. Another place he says, uh, I am with you always. So we don't need to fear that God is going to withdraw from us completely if somehow we choose to withdraw from him. That's not the reality for us today. However, there is a sense in which as believers, we can either lean in or we can lean away. And if we lean in, there's a promise that comes with that. If we lean away, there's a distance that comes with that. 
James, one of, um, one of the books of the New Testament, talks about it. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, the, the first promise in chapter 14 is that we can have peace, the peace of God, if we seek the Lord. Now in chapter 15, the promise is you can experience the presence of the Lord if you seek the Lord. If you lean into him, you can have that experience of being close to him because I, I don't even know exactly what it means, but in verse 4, it says he was found by them. You come down later on in the chapter, the whole nation is responding. This is one of those glorious kind of ignite moments where they're all making this great oath that they will seek the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. And you come down to verse 15 and it says, all Judah, the whole nation rejoiced over the oath for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire and he was found by them and the Lord gave them rest all around. presence of the Lord. It's, again, it's hard for us to get our heads around that because we live in a world where we cannot see God. We live in a world where God doesn't live in a building. We can't go to a certain temple and sort of be close to the presence of God or anything like that. And so how does it work? How, how, in, how in our experience is it possible for us to draw near to him and then experience that closeness with him? Again, go back to the marriage analogy. If someone says, I just feel really distant from my spouse. Okay, are you leaning in? Are you pursuing? Are you giving? Are you caring? Are you sitting down? Are you cherishing? Are you listening? Are you asking good questions? Are you putting your phone down? Are you focused? All those things that we sometimes struggle to do in a healthy marriage, that's what it means. And, and when you seek closeness in a healthy marriage, the benefit is closeness. And this is what God is talking about here with the the people. He's saying, if you seek the Lord, he'll be found by you. I talk to a lot of Christians in a lot of places, and one of the common themes that people say is, oh, I just don't, you know, I just don't feel anything. don't experience anything. I I know it just doesn't work for me. And I'm like, what doesn't work for you? Well, you know, I read the Bible a bit, and I pray a bit, and nothing. Okay. That's kind of like me saying, well, marriage doesn't work for me. I, you know, I kind of give a token, you know, minute here, a minute there. I sometimes ask a question now and then I listen to a response. You know, I'm, I'm sort of interested, but not really. It doesn't really work for me. So basically, I'm just not trying. I'm not leaning in. There's, there's no kind of spark there. Did you see how, how silly that sounds? And I don't mean that to be kind of a, a heavy, guilty burden. I just mean it to be a very loving nudge and perhaps a, a kick for some of us because we've allowed ourselves to drift and we've kind of drifted from God and, and our Bible engagement has become token and our prayers have been short. And, 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 you know, it's like, well, yeah, there's God on a Sunday, but the rest of the week I'm doing my own thing. And, and then when you're challenged about it, you kind of go, well, you know, it doesn't work for me. You don't know. You don't know if you're not leaving in. So let me encourage us as a church, let's be a people who are seeking the Lord to experience the peace of God in the midst of whatever circumstances we face, but also seeking the Lord to enjoy the presence of God. Those moments, sometimes it happens in church, but sometimes it happens at home. You're driving the car or you're, you know, you're out and you're walking and you see the stars and you just suddenly have this sense of the presence of God. That's a privilege that is ours, but we need to lean into it, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. 
Then you get to chapter 16. And I wish that this story finished in chapter 15 because you've got the peace of God and then you've got the presence of God and they found him and everything seems to be going great. And we get these great affirmations of Asa and we get told how wonderful he was. And then you get to chapter 16 and you get this little gentle warning, this little gentle nudge that, you know what? You can't rely on past success. Maybe this is a warning for some of the older folks amongst us, and I'm happy to include myself in your category, finally, that it's possible for us to go, yeah, in the past, it's been great. In the past, I've done this. In the past, but what about in the present? Because in the present, when you get to the 36th year of Asa, it kind of goes pear-shaped for him. There's another uh, war, another enemy that comes against the nation, And instead of doing what he did before, when the million-man army came, this time he goes to the temple treasury, takes money, and goes and pays the king of Syria to deal with this latest threat. That's that's a bizarre move. And so you come down to verse 7, and another prophet comes to speak to him. This is 16, verse 7, bottom right of the page. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. You've done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars." Asa had, had, not in his own strength, but by the strength of God, Asa had, had conquered an army of a million men. And now another smaller army comes and he panics and tries to fix the problem instead of looking to God. It's actually a theme that keeps coming up when we read the stories of the kings, that often they would do well in their younger years and in their later years, their faith would fade. May that not be true of us. You need to trust God when you're 82 just as much as when you're 22. Asa didn't. He relied on himself. He relied on his cunning. And just to make matters worse, verse 10, then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. That kind of happens, doesn't it? When you go to someone and you tell them, hey, what you're doing is wrong, I love you and I want to urge you to do the right thing. And what do they do? If they're not seeking the Lord, if they're not in a good place spiritually, they bite your head off. Welcome to church world. (laughs) It can be painful. It can be frustrating. And that's what's going on here. As older man Asa bites the head off this guy, not literally, but this guy who comes to him to bring a message from God. And the message really was, come on, get back to trusting the Lord. Seek the Lord again. You cannot get the peace and the presence of God now based on the seeking that you did 20, 30, 40 years ago. You need to be seeking the Lord today. Well, he he doesn't get it. Three years later, he's dead. He had a disease in his feet and And he didn't seek the Lord about it. And he died. And we're given this kind of sad, whimpering ending to the life of Asa. 
It's kind of two sides of the coin. It shows us in the life of Asa that when you seek the Lord, there, there is peace and there is the presence of the Lord which is available. But when you stop relying on God and you start relying on yourself, then things can really become messy. And all of that is true for all of us. We've got a God who has taken the initiative. He's made the first move. He's sought us to bring us into relationship with him. And if we will trust in what Jesus did on the cross, trust that Jesus has made a way for us to have a relationship with God, then we can have peace with God. And then, and then God continues to lean towards us. And the question is, do we lean towards him? If we do, if we lean, if we pursue, if we seek, if we go after him, if we say, you know what, I'm not going to be satisfied with just a token reading of my Bible and just a token church attendance and and just kind of tick the box when I fill in a form to say that I'm a Christian. I'm not going to be satisfied with that. I'm going to make it my life's highest priority to seek him, to know him, to pursue him, to lean into him, to to really try to, to have the connection with him that he wants to have with me. If I'm prepared to do that, God is ready to embrace that. But he's a gentleman and he never forces it upon us. But when we do, when we lean into him, we know the Bible promises the peace of God, whatever the circumstance, the presence of God, what an incredible privilege, and the encouragement to keep seeking him day after day until you run out of days. For some of us, that may be closer than others, but for all of us, Let's be a people that respond to his initiative by seeking him. We want to know him. We want to find him fascinating. We want to get to know him better and and be closer to him and hear his heart and have that connection tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Now, that may or may not lead to some kind of massive kind of revival like happened in Asa's day where the whole nation came together and swore this great oath. In a sense, that's beside the point. Because we may or may not experience big revival. But like we said at the start of the series, personal revival is our daily privilege in Jesus. Are we taking that? Or are we drifting?